Good morning, Midland Free. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I was wondering if you say like, Happy Mother's Day, and I was gonna be like, thank you. Uh, it doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, we're glad you're here. I know that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but uh, the good thing is we have a good God and he takes care of us regardless of where you're at. So I think you'll see that today in Jonah chapter two. As uh, we continue with this awesome book of the Old Testament uh, from, about, and by the prophet Jonah. My name is Jeremy, by the way. I get to preach here as a pastor, and I love hanging out with you guys. And I'm glad that you've joined us. If it's just to be with mom, that's cool, but we hope you get to be with Jesus today, too. So, welcome here. I'm going to jump right in so we can uh, save time for the good stuff. So, what we'll do is we will look at uh, Jonah chapter 2, but I know if you're new, it's kind of jumping in the middle of things, so I'll quickly refresh our minds of where we've been, but it certainly won't capture all that we've covered. So if you'd like, I'd invite you to go to our website and just watch the previous two sermons as they have all kinds of uh, key insights that will help you understand exactly what we're doing now. But today we begin uh, our review in chapter 1, and then we'll pick up in chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, the book of Jonah. If not, there's going to be words up on the screen. And there will also uh, be blue Bibles available in the back or from an usher. If you want one of those, they can help you with that. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning verse 1, says this. This is how the story starts. Blank screen, here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And as you know, and as you learn, when you run from God, your life goes down, down, down. And so we see that happening to the prophet Jonah. He disobeys, and the circumstances get worse, and his situation gets worse, and it gets darker, literally and metaphorically, until he's absolutely miserable. Everybody's afraid, the storm is raging, and lots are cast to find out who this horrible culprit is. And the lot, of course, falls on Jonah. And when it does, the sailors are peppering him with questions. They're interrogating him saying, hey, what'd you do, man? Who's your God? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? What would fill us in now? Because we're about to die. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. <laughs> Help us out. And Jonah answers all of their questions without giving his occupation or his income or his education or anything else. But he answers all of their questions with the one answer that in fact answers all of the questions. And the answer he gives, which answers all of the questions, is this. In Jonah 1.9, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That is my answer to all things. 
Therefore, they called out to the Lord. They're like, oh, Lord, don't let us perish for this man's life. We're about to throw him overboard. So don't lay innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, oh, you, O Lord, have done exactly as it pleased you. So they picked him up and hurled him overboard. And we pick up today in chapter 2. So you're at a kind of a cool spot. If it was a movie, you know, they stop right before the, you know, the bad guy is about to jump in and the good guy is like, oh no. <laughs> That's kind of where we are today. Jonah is like just flying overboard and about to hit the water. <laughs> and we pick up today in chapter 2. So Jonah has been hurled overboard. And the question that we left sort of unanswered a couple weeks ago is, what do you do with the sinner? <laughs> you know, they cast lots because they didn't know. We said we have the Holy Spirit, so maybe we have help. Here we are in Jonah chapter 2, and God is going to show us how he deals with sinners, how he deals with his people. So Jonah, over the side, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, bringing on evils, now about to be thrown over to his death. And here we are in verse 17. It says this. Pay careful attention to these words. The Lord appointed the sovereign Lord in his grace appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called out to the Lord now if you were idle I wouldn't have heard anything back ever but uh, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You, God, not the sailors, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I know that I shall look again upon your holy temple. Even in this spot, I know that I will. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head all the way to the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life out of the pit. Oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Are your ears tingling? I hope so. This is Jonah chapter 2. For those of you who like a theme, let me give you one. Uh, this is called, I would say, the theme I would say for today is the God of amazing grace. The God of amazing grace. Now I know there's no predicate or verb in there, so I will flesh out what I mean for you over the next a uh, few minutes or so. The first thing we read in chapter 1 is this, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
Now, uh, as we read those words, if you read the book of Jonah quickly, or if you think of it as you've been told, perhaps as a child or heard in the media, immediately your mind goes to the great fish. Well, especially if you're a fisherman. <laughs> a great fish! Oh, cool! Man, that must have been quite the fish. Be able to swallow a guy? I bet it was big. What kind was it? Was it a shark? Was it a whale? Was it a... I don't know. That would have been so cool. I wonder if that could happen today. Hold on. I'll check. Let me Google the internet. Oh, look at this picture! <laughs> oh, wait. This is a fake. Hold on. There's another one. <laughs> And we go, and we go, and we go, and we meet with our unchristian friends, and they say to us, oh, there's no way that could happen. Scientifically impossible. You know, the gullet of a whale, and the throat of a human being, and blah, 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 blah. Well, you go to great lengths to prove something the Bible never actually says. It never said whale, it said fish. But at the end of the day, I believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that he created the world, and that he walks on water and turns water to wine. So, I'm not really sure how those work scientifically either, but... I'm good with them. It's called faith. I believe. And it's a gift. You don't just work it up or get it naturally. God gives it to you. So maybe you should ask. Ask. And maybe he'll show you. So here we are in this book. And we start to read and we see a great fish swallow Jonah. And let me tell you, the two key words for this book are not, or three, a great fish. But there are two key words in this very verse that control the whole book, and perhaps even the entire Bible, and perhaps all of eternity. Yes, these two words on which everything else hangs, rises or falls, lives or die, these two words. I'm going to give you another 30-minute sermon on two words. This is it. From creation to fall, the redemption, restoration, the glory of God, the gospel, the purpose of Christ, everything on these two words. Those two words are these. The Lord appointed. The Lord appointed. On these two words, everything else rises or falls. The Lord appointed. Now as we read these, I know as uh, Western folks who've uh, been in the United States and had the good fortune of hearing churchy uh, terminology, we're kind of familiar with that word, the Lord, and a lot of times it doesn't have much impact on us. It's probably almost insignificant. The Lord bless you. Hachu. Yeah. <laughs> oh, kazuntite. <laughs> you know, the Lord, God, Allah, whatever. By any other name, it's all the same, right? Wrong. This name is the single most significant name in the history of eternity, if you will. This is it, the Lord. And what it does for us is it says, this is not a generic, random, or general term for God. But this is a specific name that can only refer to one specific person. It doesn't apply to anybody else anywhere. This is the exclusive name, Yahweh. When you look at your Bible, it should be probably in all caps. Now, that's not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's just the uh, English translators trying to tell you. This isn't Lord like Lord of the manor or Lord of whatever. This is Yahweh, a very specific term for a very specific person. So, 
for us, for Western thinkers, we hear this term Lord and it just kind of goes, boom, probably like the pagan sailors. They're just like, ah, oh, Lord, you know, some other name for some other God. And when, but when Jonah hears this, it's entirely different. He's like, oh, that God. Now I know who we're talking about. Not just Bob or not just Jones or Jim or Smith, but this specific person, Yahweh. So the name calls to mind the exclusive or single nature of the divine being. In other words, it does two things. I'm going to say number one, it excludes all other deities. The fact that he's, it's the Lord, it excludes all the other pagan references to whatever idol and, you know, Dagon and Ashurbanipal and all the Assyrian whatevers. It's not them. It's God. And that's a big deal for us as Christians. Here I am going into Old Testament, you know, ancient mythology to show you all this stuff. But the reality is, in your culture today, if you say there is only one God, <laughs> and there is only one way to heaven, how is that going to land? <laughs> it's not too popular right now. I don't know what news programs you're watching, but the one I'm watching tells me everything's the same, everyone's okay, be tolerant, be inclusive, it's all relative, it just depends on your culture, background, ethnicity, whatever, we're just one big group. And what Jonah is being sent to Nineveh to do is tell them the exact opposite. Why are we wasting our money on missionaries if we're all the same? <laughs> We actually believe there is only one God and there's only one way. This is an exclusive monotheistic religion. We want our kids from the time they're this tall wearing diapers and running all over the place saying there is one God. That's where it starts. That's where it begins and ends. In fact, that's where it starts before the foundation of the earth. And that's where it ends in eternity. And everything's all cleared up and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> I guess you're right. Let's bow down and worship. You will either bow down or you will, in Jonah's terms, go down. Because there's one God. One. That's it. I'm holding up my finger. I'm trying to show you clear, but it's a big deal. There's only one God. And that's a scary thought, and that's an encouraging thought. That's an impetus for missions, and that's an encouragement for us in our struggles. There is one God. It's exclusive. All the other deities aside, one God. So Yahweh, it's exclusive, but it's also inclusive. It's also very, very inclusive. How is it inclusive? Well, when Jonah says, I worship Yahweh, what he's saying is, there's this God with whom I have this amazing relationship. It may not look like it right now because I'm kind of cheating on him and running away and really kind of trying to ignore him, but he actually loves me a lot. In fact, he loves me so much that at the beginning of my people group, what he did was he found this crazy pagan idolater by the name of Abram in the land of Ur. He said, Abram, come on out. Come to me and I will bless you and multiply you and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is what I'm going to do for you, Abram. You follow me and I'm going to bless you like you wouldn't believe. And I promise that unconditionally and I'll take it all on myself. Give you a son, give you an inheritance, give you a land, give you a future. Got all kinds of stuff for you, Abram. Who would turn that down? Abram becomes Abraham. He gets a new name. 
And from this Abrahamic line, all these promises are passed down. So you get the promises to Abram. You get the promises to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to David. All the way down, these incredible messianic promises transferred down the line. And now through that biblical history, we come to the time of Jonah. And Jonah's identifying himself with that people group. He's like, I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of them. I'm in that covenant community of faith. And if I belong to that covenant, and if I belong to that community, and if I'm a part of that faith, then those promises apply to me. I can claim that. I own them. That Yahweh, my covenant-keeping, faithful God, is following after me because I'm a Yahwehist. I'm a Hebrew. I'm of that group, that faith, that religion that believes that God commits himself unconditionally out of love and grace and compassion and faithfulness and steadfast love to his people. That's the God I worship. That's me. I'm part of that. Is that cool? That's cool for Jonah, but it doesn't apply to us, right? Let me show you. I'll give you a practical illustration from everyday life, and then we'll go New Testament. I'm going to go New Testament on you. <laughs> All right? So here's the deal. Let's just say this is Mother's Day, so we're going to celebrate ladies. All right? So... Let's say, you know, you're a woman, and I know there's all kinds of paths people can take, and I'm just going to use a traditional, historical, whatever, cultural illustration. People do it differently. I get it. But for sake of argument, you're a woman, and you come to the point of marriage, and you found the guy, the one, Prince Charming, you know, the slipper fits. Here we go. And you come forward, and you find a pastor, and he says, yeah, I'll marry you. So say that guy is me, and I'm up here one day, and do you, and do you, yes, we do, till death do us part. And what happens? Well, after that, well, don't answer, men. Um, but what happens after that is that there is an agreement or a covenant or a wedding contract, if you will that is signed. I sign it. You sign it. The witnesses sign it. We send it to the recorder of deeds. They process it. And then your name changes. Assuming, you know, all this thing. Your name changes. And you, the woman, are brought into the family. And with that bringing in, you become one with your spouse. But not only do you become one with your spouse, then everything else he has becomes yours as well. So not only are you living together, but you're also sharing the same checking account and banking cards and credit cards and the mortgage and the cars. And oftentimes now the nice car goes to you and he gets whichever one's the old clunker. And you live together and you love one another. And this is the way it goes. Because this guy, you drive, you drive the nicer one too, right? Okay, good. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> You should not be driving the Porsche if your wife is driving an old minivan, okay? Just saying. Yeah, sorry to offend you back there. Um, look, this is marriage, and what happens as a male, you commit to love your wife unconditionally, and you say, yeah, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be committed to you, what? Till death do us part. That's what you just promised. That's the contract. That's the deal. You're in if she's gorgeous. You're in if she's in a wheelchair. 
You're in. She's your wife. So there you are believing that and following that and living that covenant. Now, if one day your wife's like, oh, I'm hurting. What are you going to do? Sorry, honey. <laughs> I'm watching the game. No. <laughs> the TV turns off and you run to her aid. Why? Because you love her and you promised you would. And now, because she's your wife, at any point in time, if she wants to, she can claim that promise. She can call on it. She can say, hey, you said, yes, ma'am, I will right away. Here I come. I promised. I got to follow through. She has taken on everything that you own. It now belongs to her. She has a new identity. Her name is changed on all the documents but her birth certificate. And now you have this covenant responsibility to do everything you can to make her life great up until the point where you die. That's the deal. Well, in the Old Testament, guess how God describes his relationship with the people of Israel? It's his wife. It's his bride. And they either be faithful to him or they don't. And when they're not, what's he say to them? You prostitutes. You're whoring yourself with other gods. Don't do that. Stay faithful to me. And when they go astray, what's he do? Chases them down. Brings them back. Even it's to the ends of the earth. Because that's what a faithful, covenant-keeping, loving spouse does. And so you look at the situation and you see Jonah and he's running from his husband, if you will. He's part of the covenant community. He's taken on the name of the Yahwehist. But going into the water, he can say with confidence, I know that I will look on your holy temple again, Jonah 4.4. Why? Because you're that kind of covenant-keeping God. You made a promise to me that you would follow after me and pursue me and bless me and love me and you're not going to neglect your promise because I know you're like that. So Jonah has confidence in the covenant-keeping faithful love of his God because it's a specific God who is a powerful God and a God who is committed to him. Is there a God like that for us? You know? Is there a God who calls us his wife or his bride? Is there a God that would sacrifice everything he had to make us his own? Even to the point of his own son? Do you know a God like that? So if there is, man, I'd sure like for him to be the one, the one for me. No other. No sense whoring or prostituting ourselves with somebody else. There is only one that loves you that much. And that's the one that you want. The one that will chase you down to the ends of the earth and sacrifice his very life for your sake. Do you think there's a God like that? Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. I'm part of this covenant community. I believe in the exclusive one God and I know that he will be faithful to me because he made his promise and he never forsakes it. You say what? I'm a Christian. I fear Jesus who made heaven and earth and loves and will never forsake me. It's the same thing. Don't run from your creator, church. Run to him. You only make it bad on yourself if you do. <laughs> Run, not from the presence of the Lord, but to. Yahweh, one word. Ready for the second? The next is this. So the first, first thing I want to emphasize is Yahweh. It is the exclusive, singular God 
but the inclusive covenant community. It excludes every other way, but if it brings you in, it takes you fully and never forsakes you. Yahweh. The second is this. I want to connect it um, to the word appointed. Appointed. Um, it would be one thing if we had a God who is like, boy, he's so awesome. He's so sweet. He loves all of us. That's great. <laughs> he's just too wimpy to actually be able to do anything. <laughs> you know? He can't accomplish anything. I mean, he really wants to, and he tries hard. But man, all this bad stuff happens, and he just can't prevent it. So bye, George. Even though he really means well, ugh, he just can't seem to pull it off. He's really nice. Just can't make it happen. Is there a God like that? <laughs> not my God. I hope it's not yours either. The second word is appoint. Appoint. The Lord appointed. The word here, I think what this word is communicating is his unstoppable, unilateral, universal, universal, complete and total control. This makes nuclear power look minuscule. This is God's absolute ability to do whatever in the world it is he wants at any time without any permission from anybody. This is awesome. This is what guys actually really want. What do guys want? I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, all the time. You can't. You're not God. But God can. And as you read this text, you'll see, you know, he did it just as... It pleased him to do it. His good pleasure is good. God does what he wills. And we look at this text and we see, okay, it's one thing if you just have a nice little cute, warm, fuzzy God, can't do anything. But it's another thing if you have a great, big, powerful, awesome God that does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But you certainly don't want one or the other. Because if you have the big, powerful, awesome, mean, scary God, you don't have anyone to help. If you only have the warm, fuzzy God, you don't have anyone who can help. You want both pulled together in one, and that is Yahweh. You need to absolutely must have both. So I'm making a big deal of it, but I'm going to make even more of a big deal of it. Let me show you uh, how this plays out in Scripture. So it says, the Lord appointed. I think this is driving force from even before the foundation of the world, like before Jesus made the world. God appointed. You know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God appointed all of it. It's all his. So let's see how this works in the Old Testament. Are there any examples that will help us clarify? I think so. Uh, Daniel 1.5 talks about Daniel's um, situation in Babylon. Um, and he works for a king. And when you work for a king, again, they do what they want, however they want, whenever they want. So the king says to Daniel, hey, this is what you're going to eat. You get this much food. This is what's going to be on my table Every day, I'll have, let's just say, an 18-ounce steak. You get two to four. Or you get four. Or if you get this much, I'm going to portion it off. I'm going to look at that measuring cup and just go whoop, right across the top until I know it's exactly even. And bump, that's yours. You get this much. So it says the king assigned or appointed. It's the same exact word. A daily portion of food for Daniel and his mates. This is what you guys get. 
eight ounces of wine or six ounces of wine, a little bit of meat, here's some vegetables, boom, that's your portion. That's how the king does things. He appoints sovereignly. Now, let's see how it speaks about God. Because that's pretty cool to do it with food. But can you do it with something more? I mean, wow, if we could appoint anything we wanted, but surely it ends at some point, right? Look at this, Psalm 147. Remember that number, by the way. Psalm 147. When it talks about God, it says he determines or he appoints the number of the stars. He gives each one of them their names. Oh, you thought we were doing that. <laughs> we haven't even discovered them all yet. We can't even count them. And God goes, one, two, ten bazillion, three hundred and fifty-four. I have trouble remembering all your names. Sorry. God knows the stars. Bazillions, infinity, beyond. He says, galaxy, appear, galaxy, close up, star, bing, star, boop. God, as he wishes, whenever he wishes, whatever he wishes, be, appear, do. God speaks, and it happens. In the beginning, God said, light. In the beginning, God said, vegetation. In the beginning, God said, animals. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I can't do anything like that. Not even the microwave works that great. Just doesn't. God says, and it is. He speaks, and it happens. He appoints. He gives names. Boom, to stars. Just like Daniel's boss does with his food, God does with the entire universe. Star. Boom. Go there. God appoints. Here's the thing, theologically speaking, but also practically speaking. I'm sitting down. Hopefully you can listen to this gently. Um, we have a lot of tough stuff in our life. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where it comes from. And we ask the question, so is that because God sent it? Or did I do that? Or did somebody else cause it? And we wrestle back and forth with the problem of evil and the existence of an all-powerful God. And we say to ourselves, how can this work? It doesn't make sense. And so the only way we can reconcile it, this tension, if you will, imagine that there are straps holding on to it, God's power and his sovereignty on one end and his love on the other end. And this tension is there. And we're like, how do we hold these together? And we're like, wait, wait, wait. That person was raped. That's horrible. Surely, if God could have stopped that, he would have. So what do we do? Well, do we loosen the love? Maybe he's not loving then. Because uh, if he could have, and he didn't, surely then he's not loving. Boom. This covenant Yahweh falls to the ground. Or we hold up the love. We say, yeah, he's good and loving. But man, maybe he just sort of like doesn't appoint things, but maybe he allows things. And so he's a little bit more distant and he's further off. So I can't really say he determined, appointed. I have to say he allowed. I don't know what to do because if I, if I do that, then that makes it look like he, he's guilty of evil. So I'm going to loosen this strap, make him a little less controlling. And that way, that tension's not there, right? But the problem is, if you do that, Either Yahweh falls to the ground or the covenant-keeping faithfulness falls to the ground. Something won't hold together. 
And when you go back to Psalm 147, what you find is, I read verse 4, which is right in the middle, where it says, he appoints the stars. But the verse that's before that says this, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So in other words, to be able to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds and fix the mess, to affect the fix... He has to be strong enough to provide the cure. We want the full cure. And those things have to go together. He has to be both Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, and the amazing, powerful God at the same time. If he is, he's not strong enough to help. And so you look at me and you say, well, then how can bad things happen, Pastor Jeremy? I don't get it. I'm going to go with the answer the psalmist gives. Same Psalm, 147, he says he heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds, verse 3. Verse 4, he says he determines the number of stars. He gives them all of their names. So he's holding the love and compassion and the power fully in tension. And you're going, ah, how's that happen? Verse 5, he says, great is the Lord, abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond measure. I don't know. Even the psalmist doesn't know. How does that work? It's biblical compatibilism. It's a paradox that we hold in tension and we say, yeah, good, sovereign, total, completely loving God. Bad stuff happens. We know all things work together for good. How can that be good? I don't know. But what I do know is that the Lord appoints. And that's very clear throughout Scripture. And it's actually an encouragement and assurance to us as we come into difficult times in our lives and say, I'm not sure if I want to be in this relationship or not. The Lord appointed it. The Lord appointed your co-workers. Mothers, the Lord appointed your children. Children, the Lord appointed your mother. He chose her for you. You may not have chosen your father or your mother, but you didn't have a choice in that. None of us did. I didn't choose my eye color. I didn't choose my hair color. Some of you out there might have today, but I didn't. I still like you, though. God appointed. He chose. He does. And we have to hold those things in tension, in paradox, in order for him to be able to make the fix. Look at the book of Jonah. Let me ask you, are there any things in the book of Jonah that he appointed? Verse 17 says what? He appointed a fish. I'm glad you didn't say whale. Thank you. He appointed a fish. Next chapter, fast forward, skip ahead. What does he appoint at the end of the story after Jonah has preached? The Ninevites have repented and Jonah's sitting down pouting. What does God appoint? A plant? Yes. He's appointed a plant. What else did he appoint? A worm. Oh no, that doesn't sound very nice. What else did he appoint? Same place. <laughs> a wind, a scorching east wind. Exactly right. You guys are a smart bunch. Good job. Thanks. I'm just teasing. I like you. Um, God appoints. And throughout this whole story, he's making a point of appointing. He appoints the fish. He appoints the plant. He appoints the breeze, he appoints the scorch, he appoints the worm. Now, how many of you think a scorch or a worm is a good appointment? Doesn't sound good. 
Well, he must be an evil God. He must not love his servant Jonah. Well, I can't worship a God like that who would send bad things like a worm or a scorching wind. What a horrible God. Or maybe he couldn't prevent the worm from coming and eating the plant. The worm was like, I'm going to eat that plant. God's, no, don't eat the plant. Oh, I couldn't stop the worm. <laughs> of course. He can stop the worm. He can stop the wind. He says, wind, stop. He says, waves, go. The waves go, ooh, go. He says, waves, stop. The waves stop. He says, fish, go get Jonah. Ten million fish are running. No, 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 not all you, you. <laughs> Specifically, he chose that fish. He had all the fish he needed in the ocean. He could have made one right then. He chose that one. Specifically, he's got all the people he needed. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He appointed you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? There's a sea of people out here. Why you? I don't know. God is good. And so he did. He chose. Yahweh. Covenant keeping, compassion, gracious, faithful, sovereign, powerful, unstoppable God. That's the God we serve. That's Jonah's God. I wonder. That's Old Testament. Is there anything in the new that's anything like that? Perhaps has a God that can speak to the wind and the rain and the storm and make it stop and say, peace, be still. And it does. Is there a God like that? Is there a covenant-keeping, faithful God who would honor his commitment to you to the point of death? Is there one that calls you his bride? Is there one that calls you his wife? Is there a God that would sacrifice everything he could in order for you to be with him? I think so. One greater than Jonah is here. Three days and three nights. Jonah is a type, but he's not the thing. The thing is Christ. Every type in the Old Testament points to Christ. Jonah's an anti-type. He blows it on so many levels. Jesus is the reality. I got a sheet I want to read for you. It's a comparison of Jonah and Christ. These are the things they have in common. In just a minute, I'll show you, read some of the things they have that aren't in common. Um, I know a lot of you like to take notes, and I really do appreciate you taking notes and paying attention. On this section, though, just uh, listen and worship rather than write. And if you want these, they're online on a link below the sermon. So you can download this whole sheet. I put it online. It's yours for free. Enjoy. But here are the things that Jesus and Jonah have in common. Okay? Both grew up in northern Israel. Jesus in Nazareth, Jonah in Gath. The name Jonah means dove, which is a symbol of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. 
Jonah was sent because of the wickedness of Nineveh. Christ was sent because of the wickedness of the world. Both preached a message of judgment. Jesus clearly did. But both preached a message of repentance. Jonah slept through a storm at sea. Jesus slept through a storm at sea. God prepared a great fish to swallow his prophet Jonah. God prepared a tomb to swallow his son. Jonah went into the water and brought worship of God to a few sailors. Jesus went into the grave and brought the worship of God to the entire world. Through Jonah's preaching and his burial, the sailors were spared. Through Jesus' preaching and his burial, many are saved. Both Jonah and Christ are Ephesians 4.10, the one who descended is the very one who ascended. And as a result, the belly of the fish is transformed from a place of death into a place of salvation, and the hill and the cross, a place of torture and death, to a place of salvation. This is the God of amazing grace. It is not so much even that the grace is amazing. I mean, the grace is amazing, but what is amazing is His power. His appointments before the foundation of the world. And yet, he is covenant-keeping, faithful God. He points kings and rulers, brings them up, brings them down. Stars, brings them up, brings them down. Waves, brings them up, brings them down. Lights, bring them up, bring them down. <laughs> Storms, fish, people, Jonah, Jesus, you, and me. God appoints. Who is this God, Jonah? Well, I'm a Hebrew. He's a God who made the heavens and the earth. The seas and the dry land. <laughs> and all that is in them. And then Jonah 2.10 says, The Lord spoke to the fish. He said. He told. And it did. And it vomited Jonah out onto... The dry land. I guess maybe, just maybe, he's the God of both. The sea and the dry land. Is it possible that God could appoint and be sovereign over everything like that? I think so. I think so. Christ is different from Jonah, though, in many ways. And these are a few Unlike Jonah, Jesus obeyed perfectly. He never fled or needed a second call. He never had any doubts. He perfectly fulfilled the will of his Father and he set his face toward the cross. He had in himself the power to still the storm. He spoke to the winds and the waves. Peace, be still. He spoke. And it was, let there be light. And it was so. Let there be waters under the heavens gathered together. And it was so. Let the earth forth, sprout forth vegetation. And it was so. Let us make man in our image. And it was so. 
In him we live and move and have our being. He holds the universe together in his hand. He's the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is very different than Jonah. <laughs> the Lord appointed three days and three nights. Then I prayed to the Lord. I, from the depths of my distress, I called out and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again on your holy temple. My life was going down, down to the land whose bars closed me in forever. Yet you, O Lord, brought me up from the pit. Those who worship anything other than Christ give up a lot. They forsake the steadfast love that could be theirs. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will offer sacrifice of praise. For salvation belongs to our God. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our only good, for a pure and righteous sacrifice for our Savior who brings our lives out of the pit. You chose us to be in him before the foundation of the earth, and we have no idea why. But you and your goodness and love have called us to yourself. Lord, help us to be faithful. May we apply all the riches and bounty and resources that belong to his covenant account to us. And may you give us the strength to live and walk with you forever in the arms of the everlasting. Amen.